You're listening to The Dead Prussian, a podcast about war and warfare. Many modern militaries are starting to remove, or have removed, the barriers between the sexes, and I'm talking about a binary scale here, barriers between the sexes on service in combat roles. But there are examples throughout history of women warriors. Many of us know the famous stories, but do we know the background to them? Do we know the other stories? What about the women warriors that have gone unnoticed? G'day listeners and welcome to the Dead Prussian Podcast. I'm your host Mick and I'd like to thank you all for your support on iTunes, your support on Patreon and your support on social media. It's fantastic having such a loyal bunch of listeners. Now, my guest today is Dr. Pamela D. Toller. Pamela translates history for a popular audience, which is something we absolutely love. History for a popular audience is what we're all about. She goes beyond the familiar boundaries of American history to tell stories from other parts of the world, as well as history from the other side of the battlefield, the gender line or the color bar. Amor is the author of eight books, A Popular History for Children and Adults. Her newest book is Women Warriors, An Unexpected History. Her work has appeared in Aramco World, Calliope, History Channel Magazine, MHQ, the Quarterly Journal of Military History, and Time.com. Pamela, thanks very much for coming on the show. Oh, I am delighted to be here. I'm actually one of your... Um your loyal listeners. I've been listening on and off ever since the beginning. I think the first episode I heard was when you were talking to uh, Vanya Ballinger about Maria von Clausewitz. Um, so I, I've, I've been with you for a while now. And it has been fantastic having you along with me, particularly in those, in those rougher moments when some of our listeners haven't been so loyal, but we'll talk to them uh, separately a little bit <laughs> later. And uh, Vanya, what a, what a brilliant guest. She was my first ever guest, actually. Um, so you have been with us uh, for such a long time, I think I, I think I was much more youthful back then. But uh, Pamela, before we start discussing your book, which um, just the chapter headings alone, uh, ladies and gents, are worth reading for. But before we start discussing the book, I'm keen to find out how you got interested in translating history into a format for popular audiences. But, you know, I am an academically trained historian, but I really knew that I loved history long before I even knew you could get a PhD in anything. You know, I was one of those nerdy little girls who loved timelines and maps in my third grade social studies textbook. And I was that nerdy teenager who hung out at the Civil War battlefield and the local historical society um, on the weekends. So by the time I got to graduate school, I really knew that I wanted to write for nerdy kids and history buffs and the general intelligent audience. But I also didn't want accessible to just mean easy. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I really feel strongly that we need to be exposed to history that doesn't, that we often aren't taught in school. Um, so often what I'm writing about 
changes the angle a little bit or flips it inside out so that we're forced to look at what we think we know from a slightly different angle. Hmm. Uh, well, I for one am quite thankful for it because if we only talked about history that's taught in schools, my show probably would have wrapped up uh, not long after that episode uh, with Vanya. Although um, Marie von Klaus is probably not something that's taught in schools that often. Now, your book, uh, Women Warriors, that discusses the, what I like to call the omitted aspect of war histories uh, in terms of more than just the, the odd film of Joan of Arc or, you know, the Disney real-life uh, retelling of, uh, or live action, they call it, retelling of Mulan. Um, mm-hmm. And that is those women fighting in wars. Um, what is it about women warriors that inspired you to write the book? Again, this is something I've been interested in for a long time. Like, like a lot of young girls, I was looking for role models that said it was okay to be smart or mouthy or different or not very girly. And you know, women warriors take that role model one step further and say, you know, you don't just you can be smart, but you can also be strong and. You can be opinionated, but you could also be brave. Um, you know, Joan of Arc, just as an aside, I think one reason so many young girls are fascinated by Joan of Arc is this is a teenage girl who is making people listen to her. When you feel like nobody listens to you at all, that's pretty heady stuff. Yeah. Um, so very early, but but the real tipping point for me came in 1989 when I read Antonia Fraser's Warrior Queens. Um, Before that, I didn't know, I mean, I was interested in women warriors, but I didn't have a lot of real life examples that I knew. So Fraser introduced me to women that I had never heard of before. Mm. But she also introduced me to what was really a new idea for me at the time. And that was that women had fought in more times and more places than people normally realized. And after that, it just seemed like I found those stories regularly and I started collecting them. Um, by the time I was ready to write a book, I had several hundred examples. And mm. Over the course of writing the book, it, that grew to several thousand examples. Several thousand examples, and I wish uh, we had time to go through all of them, but we <laughs> don't because I'm a really lazy editor, and uh, and that might just take me a while in post. Um, but that's really, all right; they didn't all end up in the book either, for <laughs> obvious well, that's, reasons. That's, that's just that's just upsetting now. Um, but early on in the book, you highlight mother warriors, which uh, and I, I mean, I think this is uh, even the first chapter. Um, which I found fascinating because it's probably not an aspect of uh, the, the, the famous women warriors that we kind of talk about is. Um, but can you tell our listeners a little bit about mums that go to war um, throughout history? Sure. Um, I, I thought it was important to start with mothers because we tend to think of mothers and warriors as almost opposite. You know, there's a, a long 
history of thinking that women shouldn't go to war because either they're mothers or have the potential to be mothers. Um, you, you still even find people using that as the argument about why women shouldn't be allowed in combat. Um, but in point of fact, women end up fighting to defend their children or to avenge their children. Um, it's often in the case of a siege where you know, women are literally fighting on the walls to defend their homes. Um, and you know, that was something that really surprised me. But women in sieges turned out to be possibly the most common type of woman warrior throughout history. But beyond that, you do get women who actually lead troops into battle in order, in, in their role as, as a mother. Um, the most famous one is probably Boudicca. Um, she's a Celtic leader who led her tribe and a number of other Celtic tribes in rebellion against the British in Rome in um, 61 CE, and she does it specifically because of her daughters. Um, after her husband died, the Romans took their kingdom, but they also seized their personal belongings. Bodica objected, she was flogged, and then Roman soldiers raped her daughters in front of her. Um, she began a rebellion. Other tribes who feared that they would be treated as badly joined her. Um, and at first, it was a remarkably successful rebellion. She took down three major cities of Roman Britain, including what became London. And at first, she didn't get much resistance. She was dealing with retired Roman soldiers, farmers, merchants. Ultimately, she did end up against Suetonius, who was the primary general in Britain at the time. And at that point, she, she has one battle with him. It's an absolute, it's just a disaster. The, the, the Celts are destroyed. But we have this very vivid scene in the sources of the night before the battle where she is speaking to her troops and says, I am fighting as an ordinary person for my lost freedom, my bruised body, and my outraged daughters. Now, in all fairness, she probably never made that exact speech because our source for that is a Roman historian who was born five years after her revolt. You know, there, I'm sure there was no Roman soldier standing in the corners taking notes while she was <laughs> <laughs> talking to um, her troops. But if the people she's fighting against have this clear sense that she is fighting to avenge her daughters, that's at least a reasonable expectation. She's not the only queen that we have who does fight to avenge their children. Um, it's, it's not what we think of as motherhood. No, it's the, um, the, the nurturing aspect, uh, I suppose, of mothers is not so clear if they're, if they're trying to uh, take your head off with a Celtic uh, axe or something like that. But right. um, 
it's it's fascinating. Uh, also, um, there could have been a Roman in the audience. You, you know, they just they did some weird things. The old Romans. Um, That's right. Somebody but, could have had too much to drink and found his way in the yeah. wrong camp and listened and then carefully <laughs> walked away. Yeah, just sort of uh, just saw the room go silent. All eyes turned to him, and he just slowly backs out of the uh, backs out of the. I'm going to say Celtic hut because I don't really know what they would have been. They probably would have just been out in the fields, probably. Right, um, probably. Yeah, we don't actually know where that last battle occurred. It's a it's a an academic parlor game to make guesses based on uh, Tacitus's description. But out in the field is a good guess. And uh, and for all those uh, people looking to start a rebellion against Rome, don't put your baggage train right at the back of your forces, uh, up right close to them. Uh, if you start a fight with the Romans, uh, right, it makes it hard to run away. It does make it hard to run away, and you know Celtic fighting styles and Roman fighting styles were so different from the Roman perspective. The Celts just looked like this wild, undisciplined mass running at them and yelling. And you know, few of them have shields. Nobody has armor. And you know, the Romans basically waited until that first rush had ended. And then they formed ranks and pushed the Celts back until, in fact, they did end up next next to their families and and the the baggage trains and a lot of non-combatants died in that last battle as well. Yeah, I mean it's um it's a big uh, argument for just don't bring your family to the front line. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, um, but we're talking about families. Um, now, in your book, you also talk about other members of the family or aspects um, uh, or roles of uh, women within families. Um, so, do we see like daughters following their parents to war? We do, um, and it's it's an odd and interesting variation of why women fight because often they're fighting because of their relationship to their father. Um, Mulan, who you mentioned before, is an excellent example of this. Um, I suspect a lot of your listeners now are familiar with the story. Um, And we don't actually know if she existed. She's one of the, she's the only possibly legendary example that I include in the book. But basically, the emperor, the Chinese emperor of the time, is conscripting soldiers to fight against invaders from the north, invaders from the north always being an issue in Chinese history. And there is no one in Mulan's house who is really able to go. Her father is too old, her brother is too young, so she cuts off her hair, she buys a horse and armor and weapons and basically takes their place in as a drafted male in the Chinese army. And she fights for, I think, 10 years and is never identified as a woman and then goes home and returns to her life as a woman. She goes because there is not a son available to go. And that that whole of a son, a missing son, is often the key element in women who go to war as a daughter. Either there's not a son to take the place, or there's a father without a son who then 
allows his daughter or encourages his daughter to behave as if she were a son, to learn to ride, to learn to shoot, to learn to what and shoot whether that's with a gun or a bow and arrow. The um, Fraser ends up calling this the tomboy syndrome, where you get a woman who is already trained to do non-traditional things and then ends up as a warrior because of that. Um, the reasons they actually go to war vary, but this, this relationship with the father is a very key part of it. Um, and we actually see it in the modern world as well. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence of young women, certainly who join the American armies or the American military, who have either a father who was in the military or a father who has been so supportive of her athletic endeavors. There's, there's very much a link between a supportive father and a woman entering the military today. Right. So that's uh, good. If I don't want my daughter to join the military, I just need to make sure I'm a bad dad. That's a perfect <laughs> life. That's a perfect life tip there, Pamela. Thank you. Yeah. Very much for that. <laughs> or at least don't encourage her to um, be a badass athlete. She's already a better athlete than I am. And she's, uh, she's uh, barely out of diapers. Um, uh, my Australian listeners will hate that I said diapers, but my biggest audience is American as Aussies. So uh, deal with it. Now um, we talked a little bit about this with Mulan, uh, but um, I'm really interested to know, uh, particularly if you've got any uh, other examples of women, uh, you know, did they have to hide their sex um, to participate in conflicts? Yeah, this is a really interesting one because it's, it's an idea that captures the public imagination and it's captured it in a lot of times and a lot of places. And when you look at it, the numbers are really small of women who disguise themselves as men in order to enlist. Right. They've been around for a long time, but there really aren't a lot of them. Um, the group that we know of where there's the largest number in an individual war is the American Civil War, um, where scholars estimate between 400 and 600 women disguise themselves. Um, gender scholars have identified several hundred women who um, did the same thing in European armies from about 1650 to 1840. So that's almost... It's several hundred years, several hundred examples. And, and there is a catch-22 to this because we obviously only know about the women who disguise themselves who either later identify themselves as having disguised themselves or who um, had their disguise fail in some way, often when they're wounded. Um, you know, if, if you get wounded in the hands or the feet, you can probably manage to maintain your disguise. If you get wounded in the upper thigh or the gut or the shoulder, you're going to be found out. Um, so, you know, there's, there undoubtedly were women who fought disguised as men that we don't know about. And there's sort of a romantic idea that there were thousands that we don't know about in any given war. Um, my guess is that's probably an exaggeration. And the bottom line is that even if there were thousands, it's still a statistically insignificant number. 
um, which is not to say that the examples themselves aren't really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any examples of uh, someone apart from Milan, obviously, because she got a sure. Disney movie and she's getting a second Disney movie. So uh, that's right. Probably leave her alone. Um, Kit Kavanaugh, who was sometimes also known as Mother Ross. She's mm. the 18th century British. Um, she originally joined the army in, by her own account, in search of her husband who had been pressed into service to fight in the Nine Years' War. She fought in the Nine Years' War. She re-upped and fought in the War of Spanish Succession. After 12 years as a foot soldier, she finally found her husband, at which point her, her reason for going begins to look a little shaky because she finds her husband. He's living with another woman. He's still a soldier also. And instead of her saying, aha, I found you, da, 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 she says, could you, let, could you just pretend I'm your brother and I'll stay in the military? <laughs> um, so she fought for another two years until she was badly enough wounded that her disguise failed. Yeah. And at that point, rather than going home, she stayed with the army as a sutler, which was, um, you know, one of those roles that women often played in uh, the armies of early modern Europe. It's, it's fascinating, isn't it? Um, it? And it probably hasn't fulfilled uh, like the, the requirements of a, of a Hollywood blockbuster because, you know, walks into the house, sees her husband there, another woman, it's just like, uh, you got any beer? Um, <laughs> That's right. Yeah, That's right. But, Bro. Uh, just, just, just these fascinating uh, stories that we, we don't often hear. Um, now, we have a bonus question for our subscribers, and they're the uh, Patreon supporters of ours that uh, help us keep the show running. Uh, I call them legends because every single one of them is a legend for keeping us on the air so that we can provide this sort of material to our listeners and also just irk some people out there who for some reason don't like the show but like to listen to it. I will uh, I'll pause now while we switch over. Now, Pamela, my final question is one I ask of all guests uh, and having been a long-time listener, I'm sure you're aware of it and thoroughly prepared. It <laughs> relates to our mission on the show to define war in as many ways as possible, just like Big Carl, the dead Prussian himself. I ask each guest to finish the sentence, war is. So, Pamela, I ask you, finish the sentence, war is. I really struggled with this the whole time I was writing the book. Um, and I ultimately just say war is ugly. No matter who's fighting, no matter why they're fighting, there is no way that war is not ugly. Um, it, while I was writing, I kept a quotation from Robert E. Lee on my desk that said, it is well that war is so terrible or, or we would grow too fond of it. So remembering that war is ugly is important, particularly for those of us who are fascinated by it. Now, uh, that is a new one uh, for the show. Uh, I dare say, being a listener, you've done your homework and made sure that... Uh, 
you've got a, the latest, snappiest uh, one, um, is ugly. But not necessarily all of those who fight it. There are some very good-looking people out there who participate That's in right. War not, not necessarily at the personal level. Yeah, and it's worth, it's worth noting that for some of our listeners. I don't think you're upset, especially those who are currently in conflict zones. Look, we don't think you're ugly just the current activity you're participating in. Now, Pamela, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been a fascinating discussion on a topic that has been too long in coming to the show. I think it's, um, you know, it's just something that our listeners are hopefully will get a bit of a kick out of and, and something I think that needs to be discussed, researched and taught a lot more. Well, thank you for having me. Now, listeners, uh, please uh, check out uh, Pamela's book. We'll put the links in our show notes as always, and you will be able to get it through Amazon, who we're affiliated with these days. And we get a little bit of a kickback, but don't worry. Any books you buy uh, through our Amazon links don't take money away from the authors. I would like it to be that way. I've asked Amazon if we can steal from the authors, but they said, no, no, we'll just give you money from Amazon, which is fine by us as well. Um, Please uh, look at Pamela's uh, extensive website on all of her uh, books. Uh, it is uh, com. And please have a look at our subscription options. Have a look at iTunes. Leave us a review if you want. Or just uh, support us on social media. You can also find uh, some links uh, to our webpage on Goodreads, and you can also join our Goodreads uh, reading group. If you can't find it, just search for the Dead Prussian Reads reading group. After join, jump on and have a chat, having some interesting discussions on favorite fiction books, uh, what is the biggest problem with the book on war, and it's great to see uh, the 25 to 30 uh, people that have signed up and are chatting with us on that page. But until next time, listeners, grab a book and crack on. Join the conversation with us on Twitter at Dead Prussian Pod, on Facebook at The Dead Prussian Page, or on our website www.thedeadprussian.com. All show notes for this episode, as well as copyright information, can be found on the website. The Dead Prussian Podcast is written, produced and hosted by Mick Cook. It is co-produced by Amanda Levito. The music used throughout is Caught in the Beat by Broke for Free and is used under a Creative Commons Attribution Licence. All opinions expressed by individuals on the podcast are those of the individual and not necessarily representative of any other organisation.